I'm Ethan Weiss, and you're listening to Best Known Method, a podcast where we ask some of the most successful people how they approach making life's most important decisions, all with less than perfect information to guide them. In my professional life, I'm a preventive cardiologist and scientist at UCSF. I'm also a co-founder and advisor to Key Eats, a technology company that enables weight loss through the ketogenic diet. This week, I traveled to Boston to speak with Dr. David Ludwig. Dr. Ludwig is co-director of the New Balance Foundation Obesity Prevention Center. He is a pediatric endocrinologist and prolific scientist. His research focuses on the effects of diet on hormones, metabolism, and body weight. David received a PhD and MD from Stanford University School of Medicine and completed an internship and residency in pediatrics and a fellowship in pediatric endocrinology, all at Boston Children's Hospital. I was particularly excited to speak with David as he has been thinking about the role of sugar and carbohydrates in metabolic disease as long as almost anyone else. He has had a long career spanning basic to clinical science to the practice of medicine, treating children with obesity. He has contributed deeply mechanistic studies on human beings aimed at understanding the role of nutrients on obesity. His knowledge and contributions to the field are unparalleled. David and I had a wonderful conversation, and we covered many things relating to the role of sugar and carbohydrates in health and disease. At the end, we touched on one of my favorite best-known method topics, how to make decisions on long lead time outcomes when the evidence is unclear. Here, we link climate change and cholesterol, of all things. Lastly, to those who know this field well, this is the first of a two-part series interviewing two of the most prominent scientists in the field. I will let you guess who will be here for part two, but I promise you won't want to miss it. Started out in California and went to uh, Santa Cruz in Berkeley and then medical school and my PhD at Stanford. Made the trip across the country for the first time to, to Boston for my pediatrics internship and residency, and then um, stuck. I wound up doing a pediatric endocrine fellowship and bench research into obesity uh, in the 90s. And then after um, a few years of making transgenic mice and studying neuropeptides that uh, affect body weight, I experienced a bit of a disconnect with the patients I was seeing in my clinic the children with obesity and their families attempting to intervene on lifestyle while at the same time exploring one of 50 or 100 genetic factors that influence body weight. And so I shifted to uh, clinical research, but sometimes clinical research is misunderstood. It's thought to be somehow less intellectually challenging than bench research. If anything, it's more so because you can't just order another set of mice if the experiments don't work. Clinical research can be descriptive or it can be fundamentally focused on mechanisms. And that's guided my career ever since, looking at how aspects of diet, especially independent of their calorie and nutrient content, can alter metabolism, hormones, even the expression of genes in ways that could make all the difference between remaining lean or developing obesity, avoiding chronic disease, or suffering a lifetime of degenerative health problems. So that's interesting and an important point, I think. So if you don't mind, tell me a little bit about what you were working on. I just found out last week or the week before that you had done your postdoc with Jeff Flyer, or you worked with him in the lab at some point. What were you working on back then? As I left my 
pediatric endocrine uh, fellowship clinical training. I joined Jeff Flyer's laboratory at Beth Israel Deaconess and became interested in the neuropeptide called MCH, melanin concentrating hormone, which at the time had uh, an unclear role. And together with his wife, Terry Flyer, um, we investigated this peptide, made transgenic mice, and described a role for MCH in body weight regulation. Um, and I looked at some you know, other factors as well and got a very solid grounding in both the genetics of obesity, but also the approach to basic research. I had a PhD, but it was not focused in the area of obesity and metabolism and infectious diseases. I realized I didn't want to base my life in the uh, bench research, but it provided a really solid foundation to uh, shift to mechanistically oriented clinical research. And so the idea was that, you know, you can study integrated physiology in a whole animal and some people choose to do that in a mouse and you chose to want to do that in people. And as you mentioned, it's to anyone who's tried it before, it, it presents a whole new set of challenges that you don't find in, in other systems. At that time, were there a lot of other people doing it? Yeah. So the advantage of a mouse is that you can control virtually every factor. Mm -hmm. The disadvantage is that we've separated from mice 60 million years ago in evolution. And you know, they are nocturnal grazers. You know, we're diurnal meal eaters. We have adapted as a species to eat a wide variety of different foods, ranging from high-carbohydrate to low-carbohydrate diets. Um, we have a capacity to store body fat to withstand extended fasting. You know, we're a much more adaptable species. So the lessons learned from mice can sometimes apply to humans, especially if we're looking at really fundamental cellular pathways. But those are oftentimes not the most interesting or applicable questions to ask. You know, we can cure type 1 diabetes many ways in mice. We have yet to do so one way in humans. Yeah, you hear that a lot about cancer too, right? How many times have we cured cancer in mice? Roughly how long ago was it that you started your clinical research program here? I finished my fellowship research in the mid-90s and wound up getting a K-23 mm -hmm. uh, grant from the NIH, which was an early career award mentored. And uh, the advantage of career awards is that it allows for career evolution. You know, The things that you might want to do just coming out of medical school or residency or a fellowship are probably not the most important things you'll do later in your career. So with this K-23, which was focused initially on bench research, uh, I had the license and the temporary career protection to venture out into clinical research and to do a, a few new studies. And fortunately, the studies were successful. I could do them without additional funding beyond that career award and some ancillary support I got from my hospital, Boston Children's Hospital. And then with the success of those studies, could launch an independent career. And eventually, after the third or fourth R01 rejection finally got funded, I was proposing initially studies on the glycemic index, which was not in fashion in the 90s. It's come back into interest more recently. But I really needed to assemble a, uh, a body of data before I could convince a study section to fund my research. And I, I would say that another 
key ingredient in my early success was philanthropy. I received a, initially a, a small and then a very large, for that stage of my career, grant from the Charles H. Hood Foundation, which is focused on childhood obesity in the Boston area. And that really uh, provided a bridge to get across the so-called valley of death to go from um, a small career award to getting a full NIH grant. And so that was in the late 90s. And then since then, I've been, you know, I've developed my laboratory. I've trained uh, several dozen postdocs and graduate students. We've created a center here with support from another philanthropy, the New Balance Foundation, to create our obesity prevention center here at Boston Children's, which has a broad purview. It's both research, promotion of clinical care, but also community programs to understand how we can translate science with the understanding of what works in the clinic into community prevention programs. So, you know, we're trying to take a very big view. Of course, the problem of childhood obesity is very big itself. It's going to take many different groups approaching this problem from many different answers to really move the needle. So obviously childhood childhood obesity is a tremendous problem now. It was probably a tremendous problem 20 years ago, but it may not have been as well recognized. So you were a little bit at the leading edge. And, you know, there have always been sort of the monogenic versions of, of childhood obesity, but could you actually see a difference in the kids coming to see you? Was there something like obvious at that point in the late 1990s, early 2000s to you as a pediatric endocrinologist who was focused on obesity? Well, I began the clinic in our hospital, which is called the OWL Clinic or the Optimal Weight for Life Program in the early 90s, right at the, uh, the relatively early stages of the epidemic. I mean, there's always been children with obesity in the United States, especially in the, in the last 50 years. But in the early 90s, something was changing, and that was clear. The epidemic had been developing among adults. We were now seeing it begin to extend to younger and younger ages. And most stunningly, emergence of type 2 diabetes in early adolescence. So this was a, an essentially an unprecedented event. One difference, though, I remember is that uh, when I began, this was the height of the low-fat era, we were actually seeing advertisements for sugary beverages as fat-free. There were consensus statements from society leaders saying that you basically couldn't get fat on carbohydrates. And in fact, the Food Guide Pyramid embodied this notion of 1992 with a whole range of processed carbohydrates at the base, so 6 to 11 servings. And then if you had potatoes, you could get up to 13 servings of fast-digesting calorie-dense carbohydrates with all fats, many of the ones that we know of today as being exceedingly healthful, olive oil, nuts, avocado, fatty fish, at the top. So I would see child after child coming to clinic, drinking a 1,000 calories a day of either fruit juice or sugary beverages. And while that was on one level horrifying to see these dietary patterns— those were the kids who experienced the most dramatic changes. You know, when you just stopped the sugary beverages, you didn't have to make a whole range of other changes in the diet. They would see initial, usually dramatic weight loss 
for a few weeks or months. And that initial change was oftentimes sufficiently motivating to engage a longer-term effort. So today, almost everybody links sugary beverages and increasingly fruit juice with obesity. So the problems tend to be, even though the epidemic is more severe, the problems with diet are really more complicated, deeper, and, and oftentimes more insidious. So, yeah, I mean, I think we've been conditioned over decades to believe, as you said, that low fat was heart healthy or healthy, and that by definition, the absence of fat from whatever you ate was healthy, even if it was pure sugar. I think there were, you know, like you said, sugar beverages and candy were advertised as being heart healthy. And I think the USDA guidelines as late as 1995 said something, I'm going to not have a direct quote, but is it something to the effect of there's no evidence linking sugar to the risk of diabetes or obesity? And basically the only reason they asked people to limit their sugar intake was because they were, it had been associated with dental caries. Well, which, that's exactly right. Yeah. But the Surgeon General's report from that era identified dietary fat reduction as the primary nutritional goal for Americans. And sugar was only a concern for susceptible populations, and specifically, as you said, children who are at risk for dental caries. I have these articles you know, right in front of me here, um, one which uh, really stands out argues that it's not just total carbohydrates, but it's specifically sugar in your diet that dilutes out fat calories. So there was this notion of a sugar fat seesaw. And you don't want to just increase total carbohydrates, but you specifically by increasing sugar, it'll help people eat less fat. And that sugar was not believed to be fattening. Yeah. believed to be satiating. Uh, sugary foods didn't have a lot of vitamins and minerals, but you could get those in other ways. So you add sugar to fat-free milk, and kids will drink it. And the sugar itself wasn't an issue. Well, we're seeing that differently today. A little background here. When the Senate Select Committee on Nutrition and Human Needs, a.k.a. the McGovern Report, was published in 1977. One of the takeaways was that Americans should eat less fat. Since nutrition is a zero-sum game, this effectively was interpreted to mean eat more carbohydrate. But in fact, the McGovern Report really found a link between saturated fat and not total fat, and they advocated replacing saturated fat with complex carbohydrates found in whole vegetables and fruit, not sugar. Yet here we have evidence that the take-home was really to add sugar, precisely because people thought it was satiating. Yeah, so it's pretty fascinating. We can all go back and sort of ask about how we got where we got, but clearly you were seeing differences in your patients and the world, and you put together this sort of link between sugar and this obesity thing. And that was sort of, I guess, the guiding principle when you started your, your program. So tell me a little bit about that first. Yeah, so I wasn't, our group wasn't the first or the only to link sure. sugar consumption to obesity. But based on my background as a, an endocrinologist, I began to think about food as so much more than a delivery vehicle of nutrients and calories. And what is especially interesting about carbohydrates in general and fast digesting processed carbohydrates, sugar, but also white bread, white rice, potato products, is that they have the most potent effects on key hormones involved in metabolism and body weight regulation. And we have dozens of hormones whose job it is to control blood sugar. The amount of, so free fatty acids, 
can vary by a much broader range in the bloodstream than blood sugar, because the brain on a standard diet is critically dependent upon enough glucose, unless you're eating a ketogenic diet, in which case the body, the brain is perfectly happy with the ketones. But if you're eating a conventional high-carbohydrate diet, you're critically dependent upon enough glucose. And so we have a number of hormones that prevent blood sugar from going too low. And of course, insulin prevents blood sugar from going too high because high blood sugar would be lost in the urine and it's a reactive substance and it could cause damage to the body, which is why people with diabetes, one of the reasons they have all of these chronic conditions. So uh, that inspired my first major research study where we looked at an existing database. I did this together with colleagues at the School of Public Health at Harvard. We looked at a database prospectively and considered how changes in sugary beverage consumption predicted weight change. And we saw a remarkably strong effect for a relatively small database. We published the study in in Lancet, and it got international attention and helped, I think, organize attention away from just fat to these processed carbohydrates. And then I continued that work with some clinical trials. We published uh, first a pilot study in pediatrics and then a larger study in the New England Journal of Medicine together with some other groups that co-published in the New England Journal of Medicine identifying sugary beverages as one of the few specific products whose modification alone would be sufficient to change body weight. Usually body weight, you know, you need to intervene on many aspects of diet, lifestyle, physical activity. But it seems that sugary beverages has such a potent effect that just changing it by a a drink or two a day can move the needle on body weight. And this included not just Coke and Pepsi, but juice as well? So was that basically equivalent? You know, our studies typically focused on the sugary beverages, but it looks like the fruit juices are closer to sugary beverages than to whole fruit, which is typically much slower digesting. The sugars in whole fruit are sequestered within the cellular structure you know, of the fruit, the flesh of the fruit. And so um, fruit juice is going to be inherently much faster digesting, although it will have some more antioxidants and fiber depending on how processed the the juice is. But beyond um, sugar and sugary beverages, we also looked at how glycemic index, so foods, identical foods, such as oatmeal, based simply on processing instant oatmeal versus steel-cut slow-cooking oats, could differentially influence blood sugar, insulin, hunger, and metabolism. So it does seem that you know, the glycemic index, well, certainly not the whole story, but together with carbohydrate amount, tells us a lot about what's going to happen in the postprandial state to hunger metabolism and the body's partitioning of incoming calories, whether those calories wind up a little bit more in fat and promote weight gain or wind up a little bit more in lean tissue and muscle and lead to a stronger metabolism better energy level, and protection against weight gain. So in layman's terms, the way I always used to think about this and the way I explain it to people, tell me if I'm wrong, is that the speed with which you digest a nutrient, a food, is inversely proportional to how quickly 
your blood sugar goes up. The faster you digest the food, the faster your blood sugar goes up. And then you have this cascade of hormones, most notably insulin. And the way I think about it is that if it goes up too quickly, that insulin is secreted from the pancreas, but it overshoots. And so then you come back down. And that was always why I explained that you'd, you'd get so hungry after eating you know, high-carbohydrate foods. I mean, I remember distinctly when I was eating a lot of especially processed carbohydrates, I'd get hungry at four o'clock in the afternoon. I'd go to the vending machine to get a snack and I'd get a bag of pretzels or chips. And I almost felt like I was hungrier after I had had them than I was before I had had them. Is that somewhat accurate? Right. Well, with the exception of honey, from an evolutionary perspective, humans would have never eaten fast digesting carbohydrates. All of the carbohydrates, there's certainly populations that would have eaten a very high-carbohydrate, low-fat diet, uh, those in the tropics where fruit was abundant. The fruits that uh, existed before modern agriculture and hybridization were much higher in fiber, very fibrous, relatively low-sugar fruits, or populations that would have eaten very little carbohydrate and a lot of animal products. But consistently across hunter-gatherer societies, the carbohydrates be they fruits, root vegetables, or the occasional grains that you would find growing wild, would be slow digesting. There would have been no um, counterpart to Captain Crunch, Fruit Loops, or, um, or Pebbles breakfast cereal. These tax the blood glucose hormone control system beyond the breaking point for some people. So it causes blood sugar to surge higher than the body can basically handle. That leads to a, especially in susceptible people, a massive outpouring of insulin. Now that insulin will drive blood sugar down, but oftentimes into a relatively hypoglycemic range uh, a few hours after the meal. You know, one of the problems with studies in this area is they focus too early. It's not what happens after an hour. You know, if you eat a bagel, fat-free cream cheese, and a glass of orange juice for breakfast at 8 a.m., you're feeling great at 9 o'clock. Your blood sugar is high. You know, you're full of energy. You're alert. But it's 11 o'clock in the morning, or in your case, yep. 4 o'clock in the afternoon, four hours after lunch, that the problem happens. And it's not just that blood sugar is driven down. That insulin will uh, restrain release of fatty acids, the other key fuel from fat cells. So it's a double metabolic whammy. And that drives hunger. If we ignore our hunger, which most people can't do, it will tend to slow down metabolism and drive weight gain as well, independently of food intake. So um, these processed carbohydrates, we have different susceptibility. Some people can handle them, especially when they're young physically fit and insulin sensitive, that ability tends to deteriorate over time. And beyond the processing of the carbohydrates, we have to consider the amount of carbohydrate. Um, so, you know, a little bit of processed carbohydrate might not make a uh, much of a difference if you're eating a lot of fat and protein. But these recommendations made during the low-fat years to cut back on fat and to go easy on uh, high-protein sources of food, like meat, would inevitably lead to great increases in the glycemic impact of our diets. So we talked about how processed carbohydrates are a key issue, because the more processed they are, 
the typically the faster digesting they are, the more blood sugar and insulin will rise. But this doesn't apply in the same way to processing of fats and proteins. Fats and proteins are inherently slower digesting. So, for example, olive oil is extensively processed. It looks nothing like the original olive. There's very little fiber present. And yet olive oil is still slow digesting. And it, because it has no carbohydrate, has essentially no impact on blood sugar. So this is the problem with some recent research, such as a, a study in cell metabolism on ultraprocessing, which links all processed foods together and doesn't consider mechanisms. Is that processed food a grain or a sugar that's going to send blood sugar and insulin skyrocketing? Or is it olive oil, guacamole, nut butters, or dark chocolate, which could have six ingredients? It's certainly processed. But all of these high-fat foods are associated with protection, whereas those processed carbohydrates are strongly associated with weight gain. So we need to think more deeply about mechanisms than just lumping processing altogether. Unless you're new to the show, you will know that I care a lot about nutritional epidemiology and specifically how we make sense of it, especially when the results from different studies looking at the health effects of the same nutrient can be so seemingly different. I could not help but ask David what he thinks here. Why don't we start with nutritional epi? Because I think it, it still represents the vast majority of the information that people are getting on a regular basis, either if they're reading literature primarily themselves or reading the news. It feels like there's another story every day in the news about some food or nutrient and its association with something. And I'd love your thoughts on sort of how, you know, how we can help guide people to begin to untangle this mess, which is, you know, on one day you'll hear that eggs kill you and the next day you hear that they make you live forever. You know, it's a constant cycle. So let's distinguish two basic experimental designs. One's called observational and the other is interventional. And there's different gradations of these as well. But those are the two basic designs. An interventional study is when you come in, ideally in a randomized controlled way, you make a change to one group, a different change to another group, or no change at all to a control group. And then you compare outcomes, and you try to keep everything else as similar as possible. And then you can, under ideal conditions, and we'll talk about why the ideal doesn't always apply, you can say with confidence that that change produced the effect. So you can get very close to causality. In observational studies, you're looking at how one thing changes with regard to another in a ideally large group of people studied over a long period of time. And so these associations are explicitly not causal. But that doesn't mean that observational studies are always weaker than interventional studies. Both studies have limitations. The big problem with observational studies is associations may not be real. You know, we've had all sorts of changes in our environment over the last 50 years. You know, maybe that people are painting their houses with more pink than ever before, but that's not likely to be the explanation for the obesity epidemic. Nevertheless, sophisticated observational studies are understand these limitations and can use very powerful ways to control for what's called confounding. And another big problem, reverse causation, you know, which comes first. So that the best observational studies take us very close to understanding causality. And it's important to understand that there are 
unique strengths to this type of research. They look at what's happening in a real-world setting among people living natural lives with the variation that's naturally present in a population, and they will inevitably be able to look at many more people over a much longer period of time. For example, there's never been a randomized controlled trial that showed smoking cessation reduces lung cancer. In fact, there have been trials of that question, and they failed to show an effect. So that's the problem with clinical trials. They can be weak. The effects can take too long to see. There can be complications of compliance. The people in the intervention group, and this is a big issue in nutrition research, don't do what you tell them to do. Or the people in the control group do things they're not supposed to. This actually, I think, characterizes the majority of behavioral diet studies, where you tell one group of people to follow a low-carb diet, another group of people to follow a low-fat diet, for example, and you give them some dietary counseling, uh, you tell them to go do it, you check their weight in a year, and it doesn't look like they weigh very much different. But if you actually review what they're eating, they're not eating much different. So why would you expect an effect? So we have to understand that both of these study designs have strengths and limitations. One is not inherently better than the other. We need both, as well as mechanism studies, and occasionally uh, bench research and animal studies to get the fullest picture of how diet influences our metabolism. That's an important point. I guess it emphasizes how there's not one single approach that's going to work here and that this is all complementary, right? That there are going to be questions that may hypotheses that may be generated by observational studies that you want to test in a more robust way in a controlled setting. And that may inform bigger, longer observational studies to do in the future. So I think it's a good point to remind us that there's not going to be one answer for how we get it at the question. So I think we have to be skeptical of observational studies that are poorly controlled, especially if they're cross-sectional. But we also have to be skeptical of clinical trials, especially if they're too short. You know, we know that after two weeks, the body has not adapted to changes in metabolism or to changes in energy density. You know, if you simply give people foods that have fewer calories per bite, they'll eat less and lose a little bit of weight for a week or two. But that effect washes out. And so it's very tempting to interpret the results of short-term trials to obesity prevention, but we do so with great hazard. So tell me a little bit about um, a couple of the big questions you think are, are still unanswered that you'd like to tackle in the next 5, 10, 15 years of your career. What, what are some of the big ones that you think are important, exciting? In a debate that has been ongoing for a century and still not properly answered is, does the macronutrient composition of our food make a major difference in body weight, diabetes prevention, heart disease prevention, maybe even neurodegenerative diseases over the long term. 99% of the studies have been improperly designed, inadequately powered to answer this question. So we have this slew of behavioral studies, as we discussed, that tell people to eat one diet or another, but they don't give them much support. And in our modern food environment, it's very difficult to change eating habits over the long term. It's not impossible. In fact, 
the low-fat diet era proved that with government recommendations, the food industry, and enough advertisement, and you get the doctors involved, you can shift diet. And fortunately, I think we shifted it in the wrong direction. But we need to answer another question first. Under the best situations, when you actually do produce major changes in diet, can you importantly influence risk for chronic disease? Can you help prevent weight gain or promote weight loss in ways that won't matter to public health? And we need to do these studies, which will have to include long-term feeding studies, and look at susceptible populations. We, we know enough now to realize that everybody's not going to respond the same way. So you might get a, an overall group benefit of a low-carb diet for weight loss, which is what the meta-analyses show, you know, the meta-analyses of these relatively weaker behavioral studies. You get a couple of kilograms benefit on a low-carb diet. Maybe you'd get five kilos, which is more than 10 pounds, if you did the study with sufficient power and intensity. And maybe if you could drill down on the individuals who are most susceptible, you'd get 30 or 40 pounds, enough to really make a difference to that individual's health over a lifetime. So we have to ask these questions in more powerful ways. We have to look at subgroups. And for this, we're going to need more than a $500,000 a year NIH R01. So what does that look like? I mean, just pretend that somebody has a you know pile of money they want to just push on the middle of this desk here. Have you thought about what that what, sort of pie in the sky, you know, What's the number? First of all, what's the number? I mean, is it a hundred million dollars, a billion dollars? Yeah. And, and then what does the set of experiments look like? Right. Well, the first place to start is with the uh, costs of obesity mm-hmm. to uh, the U.S. economy, uh, which are in the many hundreds of billions. And we haven't even come to the human toll of, of this suffering, which you as a clinician and I and so many of us know the reality of that. You know, each person that we sit with isn't a number, you know, when they experience a limb amputation, when they need coronary artery bypass, when they lose their vision, when they lose their kidneys. But on a strictly economic basis, we, we're investing fractions of a cent to the total economic toll of obesity. To bring one drug for just one obesity-related complication to market could take a billion dollars, a billion with a B or more. So from that perspective, investing 10 or $20 million into a well-controlled, sufficiently long feeding study seems like it's a no-brainer. For 10 or $20 million, we can conduct studies of substantially higher quality than would otherwise be possible on a standard NIH grant. And so you're doing one, right? You're you're recruiting people now into a study where you're going to put them, it almost sounds like it's a hotel or something, or a resort. They're going to go live there for some period of time. How, how long, what does that look like? How long are they going to be there? And So with the, the problem with conventional feeding studies mm-hmm. is that they're expensive mm-hmm. and nobody wants to stay in a hospital, the typical metabolic ward, you know, for the more than a, a couple of weeks at a time. And that's not long enough. And we know this very well now. There's the time course of adaptation to low-carbohydrate diets has been well characterized. After six days, after two weeks, we're still in the process of shifting 
um, metabolism, ketones, which are the hallmark of a ketogenic low-carbohydrate diet, don't reach steady state until about three weeks. And there are probably additional changes that take place even beyond that. So I think the minimum duration for a feeding study needs to be a month, but ideally we want to go two, three, or four months. To do that, we need more creative approaches. And so what we did is um, form a collaboration with Framingham State University, which is a university a little bit outside of Boston. It's a quieter, a little more controlled area. And they happen to own a beautiful lakeside retreat and in center that they use for conferences uh, run professionally by a hospitality company. So we arranged to take over a wing of that retreat center, which is in the woods, a mile away from the nearest fast food court, where we can maintain basically total control over people's diets, monitoring them 24-7. And uh, so what we're doing in this study is um, randomly assigning 125 people to one of three diets, either a very low-carbohydrate ketogenic diet or a high-carbohydrate low-sugar diet or a high-carbohydrate high-sugar diet. And we're following their metabolism uh, and the tendency of their bodies to store fat during uh, a three-month period. And so the primary endpoint for this study is going to be Weight loss, or there, it's going to be some change in energy expenditure, or what? What, what do you? I mean, I, I know you'll look at everything. You'll look at body yeah. composition and everything else. But the primary the- endpoint is what's happening to body composition. So we're locking calories mm-hmm. at what, based on our pre-randomization assessment, is what their body is burning off. So we're looking at using um, doubly labeled water and other methods to figure out their metabolic rate. Then we lock their the calories in their diet at that level, and then assign them to one of these three diets. If the diets affect metabolism or the tendency to store fat, we're going to see that hopefully over the three months of our uh, residential stay. And our primary endpoint is the actual amount of body fat change using something called four compartment modeling. That's a sophisticated way of looking at body fat using DEXA, BOD pod, and isotopes. Hmm. And uh, and so is this fully funded now? Yeah, this has been funded by the Laura and John Arnold Foundation, which is a philanthropic organization based in Texas. They fund uh, a variety of different areas. They were interested in criminal justice reform and education, pension reform, but they also have a, a program in nutritional science. And you have begun... Enrollment at this point, or you're? Yep, we're in. Uh, you know, we're in our second year of the study, and we've got another couple of years to go. It's uh, been, um, you know, an exciting challenge to develop these new methods um, and what it's like to put strangers together in a very controlled and isolated setting for a significant period of time. So we have to be thinking about the science, but also be thinking about the human element and you know, how, how to make uh, the environment pleasant. Well, sure. And then you have the added com- complication that you're going to take people away from their jobs and their families. And, you know, you're, you're obviously going to get a very select, maybe non-totally representative group of people by definition, right? That, that are going well, to any, do that. any study of a hundred or even a thousand people are going to, by definition, be non-representative yeah. of the U.S. population. So 
you know, we we understand that that will ultimately always be a limitation, that you have to consider how to generalize findings from a study like this. They don't immediately apply. But in looking at basic physiological mechanisms, we presume that the commonalities of people are going to be greater than their differences. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to see the results. So I see behind you a bottle of olive oil, which we share something. We probably share a few things, but we share one thing about our offices. I keep olive oil. We drink olive oil like it's like it's water. If you don't mind sharing, what, what, what do you sort of consider the optimal nutrition for yourself these days? What are your... Uh, well, don't forget what's yeah. stashed in my drawer. All right, there goes a bar of dark, cho- dark chocolate. We have a... Uh, I bet if you did... did so this a, is 85%, which yeah. that's the minimum. You know, yeah. for me, the my, if you'll excuse the term, sweet spot is 90 to 95% dark. Yeah, I, I didn't bring it with me, but I, whenever I travel, I, I stop and buy a few bars. And I, I even like, there's a bar um, that's made by a company in San Francisco called Dandelion, which makes this like ridiculously expensive, but delicious chocolate. And it's 100%. And, you know, of course, my kids will take a bite of it thinking, I want a piece of chocolate. And they're just like, it's disgusting. But I, I love it. And, and I think, you know, I've been eating pretty significantly low carb, you know, high fat diet myself for a year plus. And I, I feel like I've lost a taste for sweets. I mean, it doesn't mean that I couldn't regain it, but I don't like, I, I don't, I see, I see desserts now and I don't even have a craving for it. You know, maybe. this like 90% chocolate is really delicious to me, but I don't overeat it. Yeah. I'll, I'll just have a couple of squares and I'm perfectly satisfied. The other night, my wife brought home some kind of burnt caramel chocolate that was still like 60%. I mean, it wasn't like a, you know, a cheap commercial brand, but I took one bite and I could feel myself just wanting more, 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 you know, even though I have basically no cravings for sugar at this stage of my life, I could understand that if I didn't actually put that down, it could be very easy to go through that bar. Yeah. And so that demonstrates, I think, um, a point that I've heard hundreds of times from patients through decades we actually have a Facebook community around our book uh, called Always Hungry. So we have 15,000 people in our Facebook community. And it's a very frequent statement that it's really difficult to binge on pure fat foods. Very few people, you know, if you ask people what's tastier given the choice bread or butter, most people would instinctively say butter is like tastier. But who binges on butter? I mean, imagine sitting down to a a quarter pound a stick of butter. You know, the first bite might be interesting, second bite. Pretty soon, this is going to start tasting a little odd, and you're, you're not going to keep going. But it's not at all hard to eat 500 calories from various grain products, a bagel, a muffin. And then if you did, a few hours later, you'd be hungry again. So the classic binge foods aren't olive oil, butter, really dark chocolate, avocado, you know, whole nuts, although cashews maybe is an exception. But, you know, the the classic binge foods, sugary beverages, bread, popcorn, even though just the baked potato chips, which can have very little fat in them. These are easy to binge on. Yeah. And as you said, and I said earlier, you you have a few. And then we always used to joke when I was a kid, because, you know, I, I, I say this a lot. My my dad's a cardiologist. And so growing up in the 1970s, we we had that home, right? Where there was not, you couldn't find a fat anywhere in the home. You could find pseudo fats, but you didn't find any fat. So my parents would stock the house with everything you could think of that looked like a carbohydrate. And I do remember coming home from school and having a bag of Doritos and you'd play with this game. a bowl game. of cereal yeah. after school? Yeah. 
Come on. But you can't have one, right? I mean, you always, people joke, but joke about it. You can't have one. All right. But here's the thing. The, the notion is that it's somehow inherently so tasty we can't control ourselves. But there's zero evidence that it's actually palatability. I mean, how tasty is white bread or baked potato chips or popcorn? We eat these things and we crave them not because they're so tasty. I mean, the French would object if we argued that America is the uh, heaviest country in the world because we have the world's most tasty cuisine. We overeat these things because of their metabolic effects. They drive food intake because of how they influence our blood sugar and our hormones. Yeah. Well, and I would argue only that it doesn't really matter, right? I mean, it does matter to you and to me as a scientist, but it doesn't really totally matter to an individual whether they're eating it more because of the biology or because it tastes better. They're just eating it more. I don't well, think anyone Well, argues. I think it does matter because it's a very hopeful message. It wow. means that you can have – the problem with our diet isn't that it's – too tasty. I mean, I think there would be, there was one researcher who uh, proposed a bland diet, you know, just really unappealing foods as a, as a treatment for obesity. I, I think that's unnecessary. In fact, I think the problem with their diet is we're not getting enough enjoyment. You know, there are plenty of examples of exquisitely tasty cuisine that is not obesity promoting. I think this is a false notion that these foods are inherently so tasty. So let's, by all means, enjoy a tasty diet, but let's create a diet based on foods that are going to promote satiety. You know, it's not just what happens as you eat the foods. It's whether three or four hours later, you're satisfied, you're energetic, you want to get off the couch and play a game of soccer, you know, go for a walk or a bike ride, or you're famished. You know, you're eating that bowl of cereal in the afternoon, you know, or those cookies or muffins, and then collapsing on the couch. That's the difference. Yeah. And it's, it is hard to overcome. As a parent of two teenage daughters, I can tell you, I struggle with it a lot. And they, they don't think I'm a very fun dad with how I yell at them about what they're eating all day long. It's, it's definitely a difficult, it's a difficult challenge. Uh, it is a, a lot easier to come home after school and make a bowl of cereal than it is to make a salad. But, but I've been trying to work on them and find, find ways to introduce, introduce things to them that are palatable and, and probably. And there are a lot of quick options that, you know, can just become routine. Sure. Unless you're very insulin resistant or pre or you have prediabetes, uh, most whole fruits, especially the temperate fruits are going to be fine, you know, especially if you pair them, you know, an apple and cheese. Yeah. So much better snack. How how easy is that? You know, very easy. Handful of nuts, piece of dark chocolate, hummus and chopped vegetables, which both of which you can buy fully prepared. Yeah. You know, there're really a lot of options That's now. a that's a big staple for that. I try and give, you know, chop up some celery. I think celery is a great substitute for chips. If you want to dip guacamole or dip hummus, like you say, it's a, a wonderful way to d- deliver one of these. Yeah, and, and having proteins for snacks too. Sure. You know, sure. boil up some eggs, yep. peel them, put them in a bag. Yep. You know, ready to go. Yeah, I guess I'd like your thoughts on maybe it's a two part question. One is, do you believe that there is a future in which there will be some form of personalized nutrition? And that is, do you believe that there are genetic or other factors that that contribute to an individual being better suited for one or another different diet? I guess that's the first part of the question. Of course. Although genetics are may not be the most important determinant. You know, it may simply be uh, the 
uh, state of our metabolic functioning. You know, if we're young, physically active, and insulin sensitive, we can get by with a, a whole range of dietary sins, so to speak. But, you know, as those years pass and uh, insulin resistance develops, um, other compromised metabolism, lean mass decreases, then problems can really emerge. I think that whether it's genetic or early life factors or other issues, one's tendency to secrete insulin is going to be shown. I think that there's already substantial evidence that tendency to secrete insulin is an important determinant of how much carbohydrate we can handle. So high insulin secretors, if they eat a diet that raises their blood sugar and demands a lot of insulin, that creates a vicious cycle that leads to weight gain. And then if you already have diabetes or prediabetes, you have a condition which by definition is intolerance to carbohydrate. And yet the conventional treatment has been a high-carbohydrate diet. It makes no sense. For type 2 diabetes and perhaps type 1, as a research study we published in the journal Pediatrics suggests, for either form of diabetes, I think a low-carbohydrate or a ketogenic diet holds tremendous promise of possibly reducing the great increased risk for chronic diseases, micro and macular, macrovascular diseases, back down to normal. Yeah, I think the, you know, obviously I'm personally very interested in, in this. And I, and I think we all want to be able to fast forward 20 years ahead where we have the results of all these studies we'd all, we'd all love to do. But we're stuck in this meantime, which is having to consider all these different complicated factors. So maybe as a last question, I'll, I'll ask you the one that I get asked the most. Um, and you probably don't see it as much or it doesn't matter as much in the pediatric population. But if you look at, at the net of the effects of people who go on low-carbohydrate or ketogenic diets, the, most of the biomarkers tend to move, almost all of them, in fact, I think move in a, in a what we consider to be a positive direction. And we have to take with a grain of salt that we may be mistaking certain biomarkers. You know, for decades, HDL cholesterol was considered good cholesterol. It may not be such a thing. But just assuming that we have some sense of, you know, which, what the right direction is, everything tends to move in the right direction, except this one in some people, and that's the LDL cholesterol. And that's this sort of occupies more of my time talking about that than almost anything else. Do you have any thoughts on that one specifically? Well, it's easy for me to punt since you're a cardiologist. So I'm going to really uh, not help you out too much with right. that one. But I'll, I will point out that for diabetes a much greater risk is glycemic control. If you have poor glycemic control, that's going to trump LDL cholesterol. Even assuming LDL cholesterol is as bad as conventional views would have it. So on the face of it, we don't have good ways of controlling blood sugar. If a low-carbohydrate diet does that, well, we do have good ways of controlling LDL. That's right. So that might be a good trade-off. And it may be that the LDL that increases on a low-carbohydrate diet does not confer the same risk, both because it could be a different LDL, or you really need the combination of high triglycerides and low HDL for that LDL to manifest its most negative aspects, You know, meaning that it's getting oxidized. So LDL turns over very quickly on a low-carbohydrate diet. 
So it may be really the amount of oxidized small LDL that's really the key. Well, you just described and, you just described a grant that has somebody has yeah, the right. Yeah. Because then that to me, and you know, I've talked to a bunch of other people about this. That to me is the fundamental question. Because if it turns out that that's true, that the time that LDL is actually circulating is reduced and has less time to be oxidized and create problems, then then it could be that you're absolutely right that we disconnect the level absolute level of LDL cholesterol from the risk that it confers to an individual, but it's uh, all right. But you're the cardiologist, so I'll, I'll leave that to you. Well, we're I, my answer is always well, we could do the study together. Well, I would happy love to, to do the study. It would happy be great. to happy to collaborate. It would be really fun. It's one of it's a topic of conversation that comes up almost every day for me, of course. and uh, and it's important. And I, I guess my take on it is, I don't think we can just assume we know the answer. I think that we have to right. we have to. Make and, and the problem, of course, like everything else in making decisions like this, is that we're not going to get an answer for a long individual. Right. You know. Well, this not, comes back to the question you started at the at the interview. What do we do in a, an environment, as is so often the case, of scientific uncertainty? Yeah. You know? And actually wrote a uh, an opinion piece for JAMA a few years back with uh, colleague Kelly Brunell on this question. And you know, we do have to make decisions. We have to make decisions about all sorts of things amidst some scientific uncertainty. You know, there's scientific uncertainty about the extent of global warming, but we don't want to wait until the waters are rising on the Potomac for Washington to take action because then it's too late. So what do we do about LDL? You know, I, I'm, I'm not a cardiologist, so I'm going to happily not answer that. Well, but I think that uh, we want to understand that there's a lot of individual variability. Some people will experience a decrease in their LDL I did. Uh, with a low carbohydrate diet. Uh, other people like me experience an increase. And then, you know, we really have to take a, a big picture and then make judgments about relative risks of not treating, but also the risks of treatment. I think you made the the critical point, which is that this conversation is very similar to something else that has a long lead time, like climate change, where we're going to be forced. But if we wait until we actually get the answer, it's too it's too late. So I think this is one where we have to make decisions, and everyone's decision is going to be different because they bring to the conversation a different set of circumstances and ideas. And I think for me, you know, my role in this whole thing is really just to help generate the conversation and to remind people that it's much more nuanced than it's portrayed. It's not an A or B, black or white thing. And I think uh, yeah, that's my cleanest take on the whole thing. Thank you. I appreciate my it. My pleasure. Yeah. I'm so grateful to David Ludwig for taking the time to sit down to discuss nutrition with me. David and his group are doing detailed and mechanistic studies aimed at understanding how specific macronutrients affect energy metabolism and may be contributing to the obesity epidemic. Like others I've spoken with, David's interest and passion derives from his work with patients, young patients with obesity. He began his career in the laboratory, studying the science of metabolism, but decided he did not want to be an expert in mouse metabolism and obesity. Instead, he wanted to understand human beings, and especially how the choices they make about what they eat would affect their metabolism and ultimately their weight. David has been at the forefront of understanding the dangers of sugar, and particularly added sugar, especially in children. He has been a fierce advocate and has helped lead what has become a growing awareness around the negative health consequences of sugar. 
He is working hard to think about what are the most important and probably the most difficult questions facing us in the nutrition world, and arguably the greater world. This is Best Known Method. 